So it is good to be back in the pulpit after an absence uh, following recent surgery, and uh, many of you are asking how I'm doing. Uh, very well, thank you. Uh, gradually regaining strength and energy, and uh, one of the things that is so very much appreciated is receiving cards, and lots of cards, and please don't think that's a small thing. It is not. To be in the receiving end of those get well cards is a huge blessing. It's very humbling to know that you're being surrounded by all of that care and concern and being lifted up in prayer. Uh, so this is one of the cards I got, and I can't, I know you can't see it from where you are there, uh, but it shows a, a patient in a bed hooked up to an IV, that was me, and the doctor comes in and the doctor asks the patient, uh, just two quick post-op questions, how do you feel, and have you seen my cell phone? So, <laughs> so if you hear cell phone going off up here, you'll know something went horribly wrong. <laughs> So with this supercharged political environment that we are living in right now, lately, my wife and I have found refuge in politics from another era and in another country. We've taken to watching the made-for-Netflix TV series, The Crown. Anybody familiar with that? All right, you betcha. So the series is a biographical story chronicling the early years of Queen Elizabeth II as she began to reign. And it's not a blockbuster with record number of people viewing it, but we have enjoyed watching it. And a particular episode begins with the young Elizabeth as a girl watching her father, George VI, who is practicing for his own coronation in May of 1937. And the crown he will wear, of course, is fashioned of solid gold studded with precious gems and overlaid with expensive uh, fabric. And as he places this on his head, the attendant tells him the crown's precise weight five pounds, to which the king adds, not to mention the symbolic weight. And as he looks at himself in the mirror there at Buckingham Palace with the royal crown on his head, the king says to himself, there is a sight I hoped I would never see. Hmm. You see, when his older brother, Edward VIII, abdicated the throne to marry the American socialite, Wallace Warfield Simpson, the younger brother reluctantly but dutifully assumed the role as England's next king. Fast forward now 16 years to 1953, after the death of George VI, when Elizabeth herself, now married with two young children, is practicing for her own coronation. And as she walks around with that same five-pound crown atop her head, she tells her children who are watching her, you know, this isn't as easy as it looks. To which the attendant, same guy, replies, that's exactly what the king, your father, said. And seeing herself in the mirror with the crown atop her own head now, Elizabeth says to the attendant, you suppose I could borrow it, the crown, for a few days just to practice? 
And he wisely says, all right, ma'am, but from whom will you borrow it? If it's not yours, whose is it? If there's royalty, if there is a king or a queen, there must also be a crown. And it is that image of a crown that I hold up before us on this festival of Christ the King, the final Sunday of the church year. May the Lord's rich and abundant blessing rest upon the preaching and the hearing and the living of his word for Jesus' sake. The founding of our own nation, as you well know, is based on rejection of a royal ruler and the crown he or she might wear. Yet here we are talking about that very thing. Strange, isn't it? Our understanding of Jesus' kingship, his reign, his rule, is rooted in the cross, the theology of the cross, because it's at the cross that we see what kind of king we really have, which explains why we have the gospel lesson we do for today. Sounds like Good Friday, doesn't it? And that's by design, because it is at the cross that we see the king we have who wore not a crown of gold, but one of thorns, and whose throne is the wood of that cross. This is a king who would shed his blood and freely offer up his life for his people, of which you and I are a part. So it is ironic to note that in Luke's account of Jesus' suffering and death, there is no mention of the crown of thorns. Did you know that? Because, true confessions, I didn't until this last week when I was doing preparation for this. How embarrassing is that for the pastor to... But you ought to know that too. I made full confession before my brother clergy at the circuit pastor's conference this past Thursday morning. And I was looking around to see how many heads were down, kind of looking like this. And yeah, there were a bunch of other pastors who didn't know that either. So we're in good company, which is to say pastors have as much to learn about faith and scripture as anybody else. The other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, John, they all record Jesus' crown of thorns, but for whatever reason, Luke does not. But even without this, Jesus is still king. And even the mocking inscription placed above him on that cross meant as a scornful insult proclaims God's own truth. This is the king of the Jews. But not just for the Jews, for you and for me as well. It's important to remember that what we hear in today's gospel, this is the last public appearance Jesus makes before the world, his crucifixion his resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances, his ascension into heaven, all of these were not witnessed by the world at large, 
but only by his followers, his disciples. Not so when he will come again. And that is what this day proclaims. When Christ shall come again, he will be seen by all the world, no longer in his state of humiliation, condemned as a criminal, hanging on the cross to suffer and die. No, when Christ shall come again, he will be fully revealed for all to see in his state of exaltation in all of his heavenly glory and splendor. What had been masked under earthly forms of flesh and blood will give way to that description Paul writes in the epistle lesson for today. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There you go. That's the kind of king we have, who makes peace by the blood of his cross. Our sins have been washed away just like Austin David's were this morning. We have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So when Christ our King shall come again, we need not be fearful, filled with foreboding of what will happen on that great and final day. Rather, we can lift up our heads because our salvation is drawing near for Christ our King comes to take us home. That is the promise we have. At the time when Paul wrote this epistle reading, this letter to the Colossians, a small congregation of believers in the Roman province of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, the power of Rome, the iron fist of Rome was supreme and unchallenged throughout the entire Mediterranean world and even beyond. And yet, Paul encourages these early believers and us as well who live in a different age and under a different power never to lose sight of an even higher power the cosmic rule and reign, the power of Christ our King, who has redeemed me and you 
a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy and precious blood, with his innocent suffering and death, as Luther writes in his explanation to the second article of the Creed. And why? For what purpose? That I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. And let the people of God say, this is most certainly true. It is readily apparent following the recent elections that there has been a fair amount of idolatry throughout the political spectrum in our country. So many words being thrown back and forth on social media, on television, in the newspapers, in print publications. So many fears and frustrations. So many political hopes and aspirations. So many words. We would do well to heed what we spoke in the psalm today. Be still and know that the Lord is God. And in the midst of all of this, to hear the words of Christ our King, who says to us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The British author, humorist, and Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton wrote nearly a hundred years ago in 1925 in a book, The Everlasting Man, about the scope of political systems throughout history. And I quote, the civilization of antiquity was the whole world, and no man no more dreamed of its ending than the ending of daylight. They could not imagine another order unless it were in another world. The civilization of that world has passed away. And these words, Jesus' words, have not passed. In the long night of the dark ages, feudalism was so familiar a thing that no man could imagine himself without a lord, and religion so woven into that network that no man could have believed they could be torn asunder. But feudalism itself was torn to rags and rotted away in the popular life of the Middle Ages. And the first and freshest power in that new freedom was the old religion. Feudalism had passed away, and Jesus' words did not pass away. The whole medieval order, in many ways so complete and almost a cosmic home for man, wore out gradually in its turn. And here at last, it was thought that the words would die, but they went forth across the radiant abyss of the Renaissance, and in 50 years, 
We're using all the light and learning for the new religious foundations, new apologetics, new saints. It was supposed to have been withered up and last in the dry light of the age of reason. It was supposed to have disappeared ultimately in the earthquake of the age of revolution. Science explained it away and it was still there. History disinterred it from the past and it appeared suddenly on the future, today. It stands once more in our path, and even as we watch it, it grows. Whatever the political future may hold in this postmodern era and beyond, let us hold fast to Christ our King and His promise. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Even if Luke did not record that Jesus wore that crown of thorns, we trust that he did. And because he wore that crown of thorns, giving his life on the tree of the cross for us and for our salvation, we now have the assurance that we will wear the crown of life, which he gives to all who trust in him. The prayer of that penitent thief on the cross becomes our prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And as Jesus spoke to that thief, he speaks to us that same promise. You will be with me in paradise. And so we pray with the whole church, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Christ our King. Amen.